Well, today we come to the end of a series of messages that we started actually the second Sunday of January, and I'm not going to lie, when we get to the end of a series like this, I feel like I'm losing a friend. I really do. I, um, but since the beginning of this year, we have been studying the book of Acts together, and we have made it all the way to the end of the 28th chapter, and we've been using this book to develop an idea, and the idea is that life for us, for those of us who belong to Christ, who have submitted to Him, who have received His forgiveness, and who have said, look, I'm all in, right? I mean, you get not just my sin, you get me, okay, life is mission, meaning His mission, and that's a wonderful thing. But when we come to the end of the book today, I'm going to tell you it's a little anticlimactic. And I think the reason for that is that since about Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has been the primary character, and he's a really compelling character in this book. We've watched this guy be transformed from being somebody who passionately opposes Jesus to somebody who passionately promotes Jesus. From being somebody who is hunting down actively and seeking even to kill and imprison the followers of Jesus to being a guy who was himself hunted down as like public enemy number one as a result of the fact that he was maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest, follower of Jesus who ever lived. And the drama of this guy's story, imprisonments and stonings and beatings and whippings and trials and shipwrecks and all of this stuff have drawn us in and made him our friend and created an expectation in us that surely when we get to the end of the book, we're going to figure, Luke's going to tell us what happens with him. It's not the case. So when we left Paul off, where was he? Well, he had traveled from Caesarea where he was a prisoner seeking justice for the sake of Christ. He's a prisoner and he's traveled to Rome because Nero is his best shot at justice and he's awaiting trial with Nero. And so what you're expecting is Luke's going to say, okay, and here's what happened and here's who the witnesses were and here's what they all said and here's the questions that Nero asked and here's what happened. I mean, he was found innocent or he was found guilty. He lived, he died, none of it doesn't happen. And here's why, and it's an important reason. Because ultimately, my story is not about me. Your story, newsflash, is not about you, whether you realize it or not. And Paul's story, well, in the end, was really not about him. Our lives and stories are about Jesus and his mission. And that, not Paul or anyone else, is what this book is about. And the whole of this book speaks to it. If you rewind the tape and you go all the way back to January, really probably to the first message where we looked at Acts chapter 1 and you even saw Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what did we see happening there? We saw Jesus. Now wait, who is He? He's heaven's King. He's God the Son who once upon a time, what? Stood up from heaven's throne and laid aside His glory and majesty and assumed our flesh in the incarnation. He clothed himself in our humanity, and he entered into this world as a great king. No, not as a great king, though he was a great king. He is a great king. He came as a peasant slave of the Roman Empire, a Galilean Jew at that. And he came to rescue us. How? By living the life that we have not lived, but that God requires of us. And then by coming as the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus willingly gave His life, shed His blood unto death that the Father might receive the perfect sacrifice, infinitely valuable, 
of the God-man who is His Son in our place and freely offer us grace and forgiveness when we come to Him and just confess that, hey, you know what? That's what we need. What do we see at the beginning of the book of Acts? We see that Jesus, heaven's King, who has done all of those things. He's lived. He's suffered. He's died. He's risen again from the dead like He said that He would. And He's standing on the top of the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in particular right there. And He gives to His disciples the mission and here it is. Acts 1.8, says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you will go out and live for yourself. Because that's the way it works. It may be the way it works, but it's not the way it's supposed to work. He's claiming their life and He's saying, let me tell you how you now are to live, how you're to spend your life, how you're to exhaust yourself. By the power of the Spirit, you will be my witnesses and let me tell you exactly where. And in telling them where, He gave us the pattern for this book that we've watched unfold now for what, nine months? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, which surrounded Jerusalem, and in Samaria, which was north of Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And what have we seen as we watch the book unfold? We've seen that even though the faces have changed, and they've changed. I mean, just think of the litany of characters we've studied. Peter, John, Stephen, Philip, James, Barnabas, Paul, and a whole host of other lesser characters as well. The faces change, guys. But the mission has remained the same. It's not about the faces. It never is. It's about Jesus. It's about His mission. And the various faces, if you will, the various stories of these people find their significance only as they find their significance in His greater story. One of the things that has struck me over and over again as we study through this book together is we hear about all these great personages, you know, Pilate and Herod and all of these people who in their day were massively important, were hugely well-known, were really famous and wealthy and all kinds of power and everything that this world bows down before and says, that's greatness. How do we know about them? Seriously. Because of their connection with people like Peter and John, Stephen and Philip, James, Barnabas, Paul. Would you know about them any other way? I mean, maybe you could read a little bit here and there in a history book, but I mean, would you even be interested? Who are the great characters in this world? There are those who find their story in the great character in this world. It's about Jesus and His mission. It's about how Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is taking His gospel mercies, real and practical help for people with real and practical needs, at the expense of His own people who lay down their lives just like He did, and His gospel message, which needs to be spoken to the ends of the earth. And so we watched that happen in Jerusalem, and then as the book progressed out into Judea, and then as the book progressed into Samaria, you remember Philip? And then as the book progressed out into the rest of the world, and it ends here today in Acts 28 with Paul in Rome, which is the center of all of the then-known world. And what is Paul doing in Rome? Because here's what you want to say. You want to say, Tom, you told me that he's awaiting trial before Nero. 
So that's what he's doing. No, I mean, he is, but no, that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's depicted as doing in the story. Paul arrives in Rome. He's a prisoner for Christ. He is, yes, in fact, awaiting trial before Nero, but he doesn't take up his residence in a prison. He's allowed to rent a house. So he rents a house at his own expense. He's under house arrest, which means he can't go out, but people can come to see him and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And what does Luke tell us that he's doing? He's packing as many people into that house as he possibly can. And in Acts 28, verse 31, Luke says that he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the king of the kingdom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and doing it with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what this book is about. That's what life as mission is about. It's about how Jesus, by the Spirit, wants to use me and you. He wants to make us faces in His story. And He wants to use us to take His gospel mercies and message to the ends of the earth, starting in our homes, our offices, our schools, and with our friends. And so what I want to do today as we bring the series to a close is talk about kind of what it's going to take for us, not just to understand that, okay, that's what we're supposed to then go do, but to embrace it. And then by the power of the Spirit, okay, then let's go do it and do it together. And to do that, I want to look at the passage of Scripture that Paul quotes to the Jews who come to visit him there at Rome. See, one of the things that we've seen him do every single time he goes to a different city is he would go into the synagogues and he would reason together with the people there from the Scriptures that they all agreed on what we would call the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ and some would receive Christ and some would not receive Christ and so forth. And he does, he does that as well here in Rome. He shows up in town, but, you know, he's chained to a Roman guard so he can't leave the house. Instead of going to the synagogue, he calls for them to come and see him. And they come and they pack in his little house. And he proclaims to them the kingdom and the king of the kingdom. He teaches them about the Lord Jesus Christ, which causes no amount of small commotion. (laughs) And they begin debating with Paul, and they begin debating with themselves, and ultimately they're walking away, and in walking away, they're walking away from their own Messiah. They're rejecting the Lord, and Paul drops two verses from Isaiah 6 on them that would really have rung in their ears. They would have gotten these verses... It's a very strong and profound statement. But Paul knows the context for the statement. These people that he proclaimed it to know the context for the statement. The context for the statement really is is huge. And so instead of starting in verse 9, which is where he starts with them, I want to start in Isaiah 6, verse 1. And I want you to do something with me today. I want you to dust off your imagination. I think as we grow older, we lose the ability to see with our minds. I want you to see with the eye of your heart what Isaiah is describing for you today. Isaiah comes to us. Incidentally, this is his call to mission. And he says that in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Let me be really clear for you on exactly what Lord he's talking about because we don't have to guess. There's not a debate on who he's referring to here. 
Who he sees, the Apostle John, in John chapter 12, makes very plain as he cites this story, is Jesus himself. He is heaven's high king, 750 years before he enters into our humanity. And now we will see him on heaven's high throne, clothed in everything that he laid aside for you. It's a glorious thought. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what we're going to see is seeing the Lord is absolutely transformational. It changes Isaiah forever. And here's what it changes primarily. It changes what he lives for. It changes his life's mission just exactly like it did for Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he saw the Lord, the same Lord. On the Damascus Road, guys, it transformed him from a guy who was passionately opposing Jesus to passionately supporting. Okay, from hunting down followers to being hunted down for Christ. I want to tell you, I think the first thing that we're going to need, if we're not just going to understand that life is mission, but then embrace it, it changes the way that we live, is an accurate vision of Jesus. And what's glorious about the Word of God is we don't have to try to confect that for ourselves, though I think we do do that. We pick up a little here, we pick up a little there, we imagine what Jesus must be like, and all the while Isaiah, for example, is jumping up and down and going, hey, listen, use your imagination, but tie it to reality. Take out your image of Jesus, whatever picture it is that you have of Him, which affects the way that you live, it's inevitable. And compare it with this. In fact, replace it with this. Isaiah says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real Jesus. Not the one I thought he was. Not the one I might imagined him to be. And he was sitting upon a throne. And now notice his description. Isaiah was a man of wealth and prominence. Isaiah knew what thrones looked like. He moved in the courts of the king. Uzziah the king had died, and he was a glorious king. He reigned 52 years. He was very powerful, arguably the greatest king since Solomon. The whole nation is in an uproar. He thought he had seen high and lifted up, is my point. And all of that's shattered. All of that's nothing. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real Lord, the true King. I saw King Jesus sitting upon a throne unlike any throne I've ever seen. It's high and lifted up. And then he says something very curious. He says, and the train of his robe and the hem of his garment, that's what he's talking about, filled the temple. Now that, to me, is kind of odd. And I'm going to tell you why. I mean, I'm sure he had an awesome, awesome you know, train on his robe, but... It seems to me that if you see the Lord, and now you're going to describe the Lord, is that the only thing you mention? Like, don't you talk about, like, his height? Approximately, it looks like he was, you know, eight feet tall or three feet tall or, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. His height, his weight, his hands, his face, his eyes, his feet. You're wanting to describe him. Isaiah, hem of his robe. That's it. It's the whole description. And you say, well, why do you think that is? I think it's a very simple response. I mean, I, I think that's the part of the Lord that was closest to the ground. And I think that when Isaiah entered into the presence, not of some imagined Jesus, 
Not of some confected Jesus, but of the real Jesus. That's where his face was, on the ground. When you go into the book of Exodus and you go to chapter 24, you see the story where Moses and the elders of Israel see heaven's king. You know what they describe about him? Because they too try to describe him. They describe exactly one thing. The pavement beneath his feet. That is a very instructive thought to me. It really is. It tells me something about the place of the real Jesus as opposed to the Jesus that I like to imagine him to be. (laughs) And I like to imagine him to be maybe a little bit different because it doesn't make me feel so bad about ignoring him. Or what it is that he wants me to do or, you know, claims on my life and... I feel quite at liberty to complain and let him know what I really think and all the ways that he's messing up the entire universe and wouldn't it be better if and don't isn't my wisdom greater than yours? And you come into the presence of the real Jesus. It's on your face. Like, get a good look at the hem. He's very different. He requires a different response, a different reverence, a different awe a whole different level of humility. So Isaiah sees the Lord, falls to the ground, gives us this really great description of the hem of his robe, which incidentally, he tells us, filled the entire temple, and that too, I think, is instructive. The robes of the kings of the ancient Near East, and this is ancient Near Eastern literature. The robes of the kings of the ancient Near East were specifically designed to be awesome. It speaks, or it spoke, of their majesty, of their glory, of their greatness. And the fact that this great king's robes filled the entire temple tells us that in the presence of the real Jesus, not the imagined Jesus, not the confected Jesus, not the one that I can ignore, but the real one, there is no room for the greatness, for the glory, for the majesty of absolutely anything or anyone else. Guys, in His presence, all are humble. And in His presence, the value of absolutely everything is recalculated. Everything. It changes the whole deal. The value of our money is recalculated entirely the second we see the real Jesus. The value of our time, same deal. The value of our health, the value of our safety, the value of our children, Uh uh-oh, the value of our lives recalculated when we see the one who really is, when we see him as he really is. Everything changes in the presence of the real Jesus. It certainly does for Isaiah. It does for Paul. It does for us, and what I want you to see is he describes this in the most accessible way possible. He wants you to experience this with him. That's why it's so sensory. He tells us what he sees. He tells us what he hears. He tells us what he feels. He tells us what he smells. He tells us what he tastes. There's not a sense that he leaves out in this story. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the real Lord, the Jesus King, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, unlike any throne I'd ever seen. And the train of his robe, 
which speaks of his glory and majesty, left no room for anything else. It filled the entire temple. And then he goes on and he says, above him stood the seraphim. Now notice this. He describes them. He doesn't leave you wanting for description of them. The word seraphim means literally burning ones. Fire in the Bible is representative of the holiness of God. And these guys are going to be proclaiming his holiness, as we'll see here in a second. And they're in his most immediate presence. So it's only fitting that they themselves would be on fire. He sees the burning ones. And now he describes them with detail. He says, each had six wings. And notice what they do. With two, he covered his face. So he's unwilling to gaze directly upon the unveiled glory of Jesus, your king. Though he's perfect. (laughs) Though he himself burns with holiness. And with two, he covered his feet. It's really a reference to the lower parts. And so he's unwilling to expose his creatureliness, though, again, he's perfect in the presence of Jesus, who is king. And with two, he flew. So he's not standing around with two wings, ready to fly, just in case Jesus wants him to do something. He's flying already, like saying, give me something to do. And notice what they're doing. And one called to another. So they're calling out one to the other. It's antiphonal. One says it and the other says it and the other says it and the other says it. And listen to what they say. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And what struck me there this week as I looked at that is I thought, my goodness... Look at the way that these creatures who see and live in the presence of the real Jesus use their mouths when they speak of Him. That's something, isn't it? It's from out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It speaks of their heart. And what is their heart full of? It is full of uncontainable constant praise. It's amazing. They cried one to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And incidentally, they just kept saying it over and over again. Ever feel like that when we sing? Oh man, really? The Lord doesn't seem to be too miffed about it. And then Isaiah says this, he says that the foundations of the threshold of this temple, which to the Jewish mind, and this is important, was the most immovable, inviolable object. Okay? They shook. The whole place shakes, the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out about the holiness of God. And the house was filled with smoke, which speaks of the presence of God himself. And now then, for the first time in this vision, Isaiah speaks and he proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. He is a prophet of God. And in the chapters leading up to this, he has cursed, you know, like pretty much everyone but himself. But everything's been recalculated. And he's realized... Oh, good grief, I'm not accepted. Because when you see the real Jesus, okay, you see the real you. It's like one of those horrible magnifying mirrors, you know, it's just like, I didn't even know I had all these pores on my face. It's very unattractive. And it is very unattractive. 
We compare ourselves with ourselves and then we begin to feel good about ourselves. Well, we're not the mirror. Our culture is not the mirror. Our society is not the mirror. This world that we live in is not the mirror. God comes to us and says, hey, let me just clear this up for you. I am the mirror. Take a look at this, which is one of the reasons why we find a way to confect for ourselves a tamer, different Jesus. Don't run from the real Jesus. Run to Him. Look in the mirror and do what Isaiah does. Isaiah looks at the real Jesus and he says, uh, woe is me. He proclaims a prophetic curse now upon himself. Why? For I'm lost. It's been translated so many different ways. That word, it's, it's difficult. I'm ruined. I'm dissolved. That's the one Luther came up with. I'm undone. I like that. That's the King James. But the idea is, I thought I was whole. I thought I was together. I thought everything was fine. I came into the presence of Jesus and I am coming apart at the seams and I'm lost because I can't put myself back together again. I can't make myself whole. I can't make myself clean. I'm, I'm ruined. I'm undone, he's saying, for I am a man of unclean lips. But again, what do the lips signify? The heart. See, the angels had the pure heart. And Isaiah's thinking, my goodness, what's come out of my mouth? It's interesting that the Scriptures tell us that the mouth is the hardest thing to tame. Has that been your experience? Because like, I, I do that all the time. It's like, oh, it comes out and then you can't grab it and put it back in. But even if you could grab it and put it back in, it'd still be in there, wouldn't it? That's the problem. And he's undone. He says, I'm a man of an unclean heart is really what he's saying. And I dwell in the midst of a people of an unclean heart. And and my eyes, here's what's revealed this to me, have seen the king. And it's like this major magnifying mirror. And I I, I see it for the first time. And I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and everything's been recalculated. He cries out in pain. But notice what the real Jesus does. Because the real Jesus doesn't then come to him and say, all right, listen, we'll make a deal. I'll work with you. I'll cut you some slack. I, I want you to get involved in this. And then, you, you know, you start doing these things. And then, you know, we'll, I want you to work with this person. And, I, I, and then maybe I'll forgive you. And then I'll maybe make you clean. Or maybe there's a way you can help yourself. Or no, it's silly. It's too late. It's game over, Isaiah says. Aside from God who raises the dead, I'm dead. But Jesus raises the dead. says, then one of the seraphim flew to me. Isn't that cool? Because he intuits what the Lord would have him do. It's not like Jesus turns to the seraphim and goes, okay, look, I'm going to be gracious to this guy. He's confessed his sin. And I want you now to go do this for me. He just does it. He knows the Lord's heart. He intuits his will and he's right in his intuition. Then one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me having in his hand a burning coal. You're like, wouldn't that burn his hand? No, he's already on fire. Just stay with me on this, okay? He's heating up the coal, all right? That he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar, this is the temple, remember. The altar is the altar of sacrifice. It's the place where the blood of the innocent lamb is spilled. 
It's a bloody coal. And Isaiah will literally taste his salvation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He flies to him, having taken in his hand a burning coal, a bloody coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, which is again symbolic of his heart. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. It's gone. Effective immediately. And your sin is atoned for. It's done. It's finished. And now for the first time in this vision, Jesus speaks. And here's why. Because for the first time in this vision, Isaiah and hopefully the rest of us are ready to hear the call. Which is the call to go out and live our lives as mission. A call that's hard to embrace, frankly, until we reckon with the real Jesus. We can't embrace it, I think, until we have an accurate vision of this King who is Christ and who is so amazing that the only part of Him that we get to see and are capable of describing after encountering Him is the hem of His robe because we're face down. That's our rightful place. The King so glorious that the sheer magnitude of His glory leaves no room for the glory of anything or anyone else. A King so awesome that before Him all are humble. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess, Paul says. The king so valuable that in his presence the value of everything is recalculated and so holy that not even the perfectly righteous on-fire angels are willing to gaze directly upon him. Isaiah is finally ready for this message because, first of all, he has seen an accurate vision of the king, and secondly, he has personally experienced his grace and forgiveness. Look, we can't go out to the world to give the world something that we ourselves have not received. We can't go out to the world and credibly, you know, tell them about something that, you know, really honestly, we don't ourselves know. But I think the opposite of that is true too. I think that when we've received it, man, it's like, you know, like a hot potato. You know, we just, we can't wait to give it away (laughs) in a good way to share it. When we really have known and experienced it, like there's a little fire in us now and we want to, we want to tell people about it. We want to tell people about it. And so Isaiah says in verse 8, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so the king now speaks, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, all right, look, um, I'm considering this. Like I might be in on this deal. I just would like to know some of the details first. Seriously, and I don't think that's unreasonable, Lord. Nice hymn. No, seriously, like, I've got a lot of stuff going on, man. Like, how much of this time of mine is this going to take? You know, what is this going to do for my comfort level? And and what kind of risks are involved here exactly? Because I'd like to calculate it, you know? Tell me about the details. Now, the details were dissolved. They're just, they're just gone. It, It doesn't, it doesn't matter. See, everything's been refigured. Does not matter what the goal is, or what the what the mission is, or what it's going to cost, or what it's going to involve, or whether he lives or dies. Or it's it's like, so what? He's dying to be sent. It's sort of like, well, I, you know, I'm not hearing anybody else, so I'm I'm like, I'd be excited to do this. He says, here am I. Send 
me. And then we come to the passage that Paul quotes to the Jews that he's invited into his house because he couldn't go to their synagogue. To whom he has proclaimed the kingdom and the king, most importantly, with whom he has reasoned, no doubt, from all of the Old Testament, but but I think quite a bit probably from Isaiah, since Isaiah's on his mind as they're walking away. And it's frankly a very sobering statement. It's the message of Isaiah to his generation. It's the message of Paul to that little group that gathered in his little house. He sees himself in some sense, at least in regard to them, standing in the footsteps of Isaiah. What a mission did Isaiah get? Well, let's read it. God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Now, that's just unnatural. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive what you're looking at is the idea. Make the heart of this people what? Receptive? No, dull. Their ears light? No, heavy. And blind their eyes. Lest what will happen? Lest they see with their ears and hear, or lest they see with their eyes. If they saw with their ears, that'd be really awkward. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now that's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? What is that? That is a statement of judgment. That is God coming to the Israelites of Isaiah's day and saying, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. That's God through Paul saying to those folks, God's going to bring judgment upon you. That is Paul making what in his day, I'm sure, as well as in ours, is a terribly politically incorrect and seemingly insensitive statement, which is what? That to reject Jesus is to embrace that. But to embrace Jesus is to be freed of that. It's to receive heaven's king. It's to hear him say, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's finished. We don't walk away from heaven's king. That's judgment. We walk toward him. That's eternal life and forgiveness. And this statement here in Isaiah 9 and 10 is not the final word for Isaiah. I mean, he goes on. It's a long book. And you know what he goes on to preach? Hope, restoration, healing for future generations that he knew would come and did in fact come. And it's not the final word for Paul either. He says this in Acts 28, verse 28, as these guys are, you know, final three or four, walking out the door after he's just dropped that big truth bomb on them. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they, what? Will. Listen. And I think he suggests elsewhere in his writings that future generations of ethnic Israelites would as well. They will listen. And I think what we need to walk away from with that is just the reality that, man, there are people in our lives, our homes, our offices, our schools, our city, our neighborhood, and all over this world who by God's providence will listen. Think about that. 
I mean, now look, there are plenty who won't, but there are a lot out there who will listen. If we go to them, if we lay down our lives to help them, if we open our mouths to share with them, if we bring them into the presence of heaven's king and they see who he really is, who they really are, and cry out as we have, good grief, I am undone, <laughs> lost, and experience his grace and forgiveness. That's the mission. And we're called to give not part of our life, but the whole of our life to it. And so maybe some of you are thinking, all right, well, that's great, but what actually did happen to Paul? Because it's going to drive me nuts if you don't tell me. So I'm sort of a Paul Harvey, the rest of the story guy. So let me share it with you. Luke tells us in verse 30 of this chapter that he lived in Rome for two years. That's kind of a significant time period. It's a little hint as to what may have occurred. The Jews in Jerusalem who originally brought the charges against Paul there in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, and, you know, that brought Paul all the way to Rome where he's waiting trial before Caesar. Okay, they were given approximately, it was about 18 months, a little less than two years to get their witnesses together, to gather their evidence, to get their high-priced lawyer, and to come all the way to Rome like Paul did and to present their case before Nero. And what tradition tells us, not Luke is that they were a no-show. They didn't come. And I'm not surprised by that, because if you've been traveling along with us and Paul, you know that they didn't call any witnesses in Jerusalem where all the events took place. They didn't call any witnesses in Caesarea, not that far from Jerusalem. So what are the odds that they're going to come to Rome and, and suddenly show up with a well-put-together case? Tradition tells us that Paul was released and that he went about for many more years proclaiming the kingdom and telling the world about the king, the real Jesus, heaven's great king, until he was rearrested. And then he was tried for his faith in Christ. Things changed. <laughs> and he was beheaded there in Rome. And you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> Well, that's a glorious ending, isn't it? Isn't it? How does his story end? Death in the grave or eternal life and eternal glory? You see, when you come into the presence of the king, everything's recalculated, isn't it? Including life and death. What a glorious end. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Yeah, it's a terrific loss, right? No, <laughs> it's gain. So life is mission. And if we're really going to get it and then live it, that's the key. It's both and. We need an accurate vision of the king. One that puts him in his rightful place and us in ours. So, you know, be thinking pavement, Okay. And that's a good thing. We need to personally experience and be transformed by the experience of His grace. We need to realize that left to ourselves, we are lost. But that in Christ, we are found forever. 
And we need to wake up to the fact that there are people in our families and homes and offices and schools and neighborhoods and all around this world that need to experience the mercies of Jesus at our expense and the message of Jesus from our lips. I think it's apropos that we have Hope South Florida here today because I want to tell you, that's one of the ways that a lot of people at Rio do exactly that. Mercies and message. So life is mission. 35 weeks. Wow. Go live it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, God, that, um, that You would help us in our sin, in our broken minds, in our limited capacities to see the real Jesus. That You would move us to be greatly humbled before Him. And that in His presence, Lord, we might see His holiness and our unholiness. His righteousness and our unrighteousness. His great wisdom and our great foolishness for what it really is. God, grant us that uncomfortable grace and let us cry out for His forgiveness. For His glory is not just seen on the throne. It is seen most notably on the cross. On the cross. Help us to see Him there too. His love poured out and shed for each one of us. His arms outstretched to welcome all who come to Him, confessing their sin and claiming His life. Let us do that too. Transform us, we pray, through that. And then turn us loose on this world. Help us to wake up to the fact that life is not, emphatically not, about us. And that our stories will amount to absolutely nothing if they are not rolled in to His story. That true greatness is found in the humility of serving Jesus. I pray that you would do these things for your glory. Amen.